The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Well, this is the first, last, and only time you'll ever see me wearing this hat, so enjoy it. But it it does mark a really cool uh, trip that my family and I just got to take. I've been in school for a long time, and I graduated last weekend, maybe two weekends ago now. What a journey it has been. I can't take you to that ceremony, but I'll I'll replay two parts for you. One part was right toward the end of the whole program, uh, Dr. Kent, one of the professors there, you know, you got to imagine a big mega church packed out with, there's just no moving space at all, and there's no room in between your knee and the front of the next pew, and he says, everybody in here who is a child of one of the graduates go find your parent and sit with them. (laughs) It was just chaos, and yet I had this moment where Wesley and Annabelle got to crawl over pews and through a bunch of people and come wrap their arms around me as we had this real punctuated moment. So it was very special. I think that moment alone was worth the travels all the way out there. We drove. Uh, I did most of the driving, goodness gracious. Here's one more. I'd like to share this with you. It was in the, the, the program and we each got to write a little, um, a little blurb, sort of capturing our whatever related to the program. So this was my section that I wrote, and I just wanted to share it with you. Um, Without my wife's patience and trust, I would probably be dead, and I would certainly have never completed this work at Northern. Northern Seminary was where I was at out in Chicago. So thank you, Allie. Without you, I would not be me. Also, thank you, Scott. Scott was my professor. Uh, Your guiding wisdom and love have fueled a deep and ongoing transformation in my soul that will extend to transform those that I serve. Joining our cohort, plunging headlong into first century context, that was my emphasis of study. Laughing, crying, traveling, sharing meals, words cannot capture all of the goodness. Graduation is a blessing but it's like the blessing of returning home after a beautiful and life-changing adventure. Glad to be home, but bummed that it has to end. Perhaps the bittersweet end is better understood as a beginning. Thank you, Jesus. So that was some reflection for me. It's been a long time that I've been in school, and I thank you guys as well for helping me finish this task. This was a big project. Okay, that's enough about all of that. We are in the series that we've been in for some time, the story of the church, the story of the Holy Spirit coming into the world, the story, uh, as we'll see today, about Paul, some of the other apostles. It's the story that Luke records in the book of Acts. I want to start today with a little bit of uh, science, botany, biology review So go ahead, Tuck, put my first slide up if you could. Does anybody know what that is? It's not marijuana. No, you're right. It would be a different leaf. 
It's, uh, it's milkweed. Milkweed. Now, and where we just went and visited with my family, my, my father owns some acreage in northern Minnesota. Down in the lowlands, there's hundreds and hundreds of these milkweed plants. And early part of summer, you'll also find this on them. Next slide. You will find this insect, this caterpillar. Some of you might remember that from the books we read in elementary school. This is a cool little caterpillar, the Danaus plexippus. All right. And that is, that is your uh, milkweed butterfly, more commonly known as the king of all butterflies or the monarch. Next slide. All right. So these caterpillars depend on the milkweed. They don't live on any other kind of plant. They have some kind of symbiotic connection with it. And then they will spend their life as caterpillars on that one plant. And then maybe you remember what happens to them. And this is part of the story today with Paul. It's like four stages of a full metamorphosis. They go from the egg to the larvae or the caterpillar. Then they go into that chrysalis or the pupa stage where they're wrapped up in a cocoon and then they break free as monarch caterpillars. It has to be one of the most profound natural pictures of total transformation that we've got. I mean, it is crazy. Same being but turns into a completely different kind of being, you know? It's like it stays the same and is totally different at the same time. And that's why we're studying bugs this morning. You can take the slide down now, Tuck. We learn about this metamorphosis in school when we're little. We think about how incredible it is that this little bug can turn into a butterfly. Think about how complex and how incredible it is for a human being to be transformed. Paul, that's who we'll look at today. In the 12th chapter of his letter to the Roman churches, he says, we ought to not be conformed by this world, conformed to this world, adapted to fit well within this world, but he says instead we ought to be transformed be made new. This has been thematic in our, in our preaching and teaching here for the past several years. Even back to the Exodus, it wasn't about getting from the bad place to the good place primarily. It was you who are not a people will be made into my people. You have no structure, no law, no life. I'm going to give that all to you. So God is in the business of changing us in really, really profound ways. That pudgy, weak little caterpillar. Striped, though. They're very cool looking. But they're soft and weak. They have suction cup feet. They can't even jump. <laughs> he turns into a butterfly that can move 100 miles a day. They'll migrate to Mexico. The longest recorded day of traveling for a monarch is 265 miles. Even I can't fly that far in a day. The story of Saul and his great conversion then becomes a very vivid picture of human transformation, and that's what I want to go into. So if you'd open your Bible up to Acts chapter 9, I'm going to just read the first few verses to sort of set the stage, all right? This is coming off the heels of the scene uh, where Stephen was stoned to death where they took him outside of the city and they beat him to death with rocks uh, for proclaiming the gospel and for refusing to stop. 
when they told him he needed to. We remember at the tail end of that story, Luke gives us a little foreshadowing, and he says, and there in the sidelines was a man named Saul, and Saul completely approved of everything that was going on. You remember that from before. So here's where we pick the story back up. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's where he's at. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, Saul asked. Well, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. We'll read a few more verses still, but we'll pause there for a second. You think about what you see happening here. This is some pretty terse writing. There's just a few sentences. There's a lot going on here, and I want to spend a little bit of time helping us to understand what kind of person Paul was so we can feel the weight of what it means to become who he becomes. All right? He's very zealous living in a certain way, and that all changes in the moment that we just read, but there's not a lot of descriptors there. So... Here's a couple of warnings I want to give up front, because this, if you've been around church or people who read the Bible for any amount of time, this might be a familiar story to you. Sometimes familiarity is not our friend, though, so sometimes we have to recalibrate. So here's one thing I want to warn you of right up front. Too often we have rushed to interpret this scene uh, as though Paul is converting from one religion to a better or another religion. That's a, that's a kind of an easy way to say, oh, well, he's converting from a bad religion into a, a good one, okay? It, th- there's no such thing as Christianity in this moment. Now, you, see, you see that in the way Luke talks about the followers of Jesus. He says, those who belong to the way. So there isn't a religion that Paul's changing from one into the next. Uh, beyond that we understand that Paul doesn't start worshiping God now. It's not as though he was not worshiping God and now he has begun to worship God, okay? It's, he's in continuity with the way he's been living in so many ways and, he's, and he makes a radical deep change as well. And we'll flesh this out a little bit more. But I just kind of want to say up front, this is where I'm going with this passage, and I think it's really important. Ultimately, Paul has been utterly devoted to the one true God, but he was wrong, and we'll see this, he was wrong in his understanding of who that one God was and what that God was doing in this world. Even what he was about. What is God about what kind of God is God? Paul was wrong about some of that stuff. Very zealous for God, 
wanting to do what's right and yet didn't know God in the way that he needed to. Okay? Paul had been very right in his devotion to Israel. It's good to be devoted to Israel throughout all of the Old Testament. It's a good spot to be. He's right about that. He's, he's devoted to the Bible, if you will, the Torah. That's a good thing. But he was totally off on his view of what Israel is supposed to be. Okay? So he's devoted to Israel. He just doesn't really get what Israel's vocation is or what it's supposed to be doing in the world. Um, and he's wrong even about the meaning of Torah. Okay? Devoted to the Bible just doesn't know what it means. Boy, does that get us into some tricky and problematic situation <laughs> when we get to be really devoted to the scriptures and we don't know what they mean. So it's a picture of a lifelong commitment to God that has been totally misdirected. He'll write after this. So this is our first sort of scene with, with Saul, who becomes Paul. 10 to 20 years after this, he'll start writing letters to churches that he plants, and he'll say about his Jewish friends in this time, their problem is not that they lack zeal for God. They're stoked about Yahweh. They're stoked about the Bible. The problem is that they're ignorant. They don't know really key things. And of course, the key piece that they were missing is what gets revealed to Paul here on the Damascus Road. Jesus. So, summarize those, those little caveats up, uh, up front to say something like this. I think it's possible to be very devoted to God and his word, but to be actually very far off base. And I think what gets us back on base is what gets Paul on base or on the right trajectory, and that's gonna be an encounter with the person of Jesus himself. So that's very important. Since this is not a story about why one person chose to switch to a new religion, instead it's a story about a person who has been totally metamorphosed, if you will, totally transformed. It's a story about somebody who's completely changed. Because it's that kind of story, I want to ask a question about the difference between adhesion and conversion. What happens to a person who's simply adhering to Christianity? And what happens to a person who belongs to the way of Jesus, as Luke has described Christ followers in our passage already? What's the difference between adhering and being converted or changed? Paul goes through the cataclysmic event here. And he emerges from his baptism as a very changed human being. All right, so I wanna, I wanna go back over those verses again in Acts 9. I wanna immerse ourselves in the story a little bit more. I wanna listen for the voice of God. As we read the Bible together, we're listening for the voice of God's spirit leading us and teaching us. I wanna do that carefully. And so before we jump back in, I'd like to pray with you and then we'll go right back into the same verses. Jesus, many of us here in this room have encountered you 
in many ways. I, I don't think many of them are like the way Paul encountered you. Uh, and yet some of them are even more profound. It's an amazing thing that you care to break into our lives while we're still fumbling about and blind because you love us. And we're thankful for that today. So we ask you, Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, help us to see you, help us to hear you, help us to know you. Help us to become different people, new people, alive people as we learn about you and what it means to live according to your way, Jesus. We need your help big time, and we're here to receive it from you. Amen. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out threats to murder the Lord's disciples, goes to the high priest. He wants letters from the, so he can take them to the synagogues. This, in the Greek, it says he's breathing threats and slaughter, all right? You, you gotta feel the seethingness of Paul here. And it fits that scene we already saw in Acts 8, where he's not in any way bummed about beating a human being to death with stones outside of town. He's sitting there saying, I approve of that. That gives you a little glimpse. Here it says he's breathing threats and slaughter. He doesn't want this movement that Jesus started to have another minute of breathing room. He wants it snuffed out. Luke also told us that on that day, the day Stephen was killed, a great persecution began, and it drove the apostles out of Jerusalem. I suspect that's why we even have uh, the beginnings of church life up in Damascus. That's about 140 miles away. This is about a week-long travel by foot that Paul goes on you say, well, how did a church get all the way up there already? I think it was based on the, the persecution that has already begun in Jerusalem. Okay? So here he is, and we say, well, okay, I get that Paul is Jewish, and so a rise of Christian thinking or behaving might be threatening to him, but my goodness, there's lots of other religions around. Uh, that Paul doesn't seem to be adamantly opposed to or wanting to stop, why is he so hot to trot about this specific one? And that's where we have to try to get into the heart and mind of Paul. We don't want to do historical psychology. I, I think it, I don't know, it's, it's like trying to draw something with, that requires tremendous precision uh, with a box of crayons. So we're not trying to get into Paul's head in terms of what do I think Paul might have been thinking? But we can say, what were Pharisees about, historically speaking, what was going on in Paul's world in his day that helps us to understand why he would be so vehemently opposed? And I want to walk you through two different things here. The first one is hope. Paul, as a Jewish person in the first century, has been brought up within a lifestyle of hope. You have to understand this outside of what we often think of as hope uh, in our modern world. Often when I say the word hope, you think what you think, what you and I both think is something that's better defined as optimism. Uh, the idea that, man, things are gonna be okay. It's all gonna work out. We got this. It's the idea of feeling good about the future even in the face of things that make it look like the future is not gonna go so well, okay? 
So that's how we often think of hope. Hey, this is just a giant chaos festival, but it's going to be all right. I've got hope. That's not what I mean in terms of what the Bible talks about with hope and what a first century Jewish person would, would be thinking. Paul has grown up in a lifestyle of hope, but it's, it's a way of life where you choose in the face of the world's chaos to stay faithful to God. So it's not about feeling as much as it is about faith. And you trust the most important things you've been taught as a follower of God, which is God created this world. He's actively working in this world. And what he has said will happen to this world is going to happen to this world. And what he has said is that there will be a full restoration. Every sin, every grievance, every transgression will be treated with justice. And so we trust God in the face of great suffering and evil. Our hope then is a living hope. It's a way of life. It is therefore a virtue that you work on in your life, not something you just feel because you are just optimistically, naively hoping for the best, okay? So that's really important because Paul grew up in a really chaotic world and he's oppressed as a religious minority group. Rome is not respecting of the Jews in a, in a real strong sense, and the Jews feel it. So they have to figure out, do we go into despair? And some are. Do we, they feel like they're in exile? God in, has left Jerusalem, he's left the temple. So they're alone, but they're hoping, which means faithfully trusting in God's promises faithfully trusting that what God has said will happen, will happen. Now, another thing. When Israel's history takes them into slavery in Egypt, we're not told that that was a punishment. It was just what happened. God saved them from slavery. God is the rescuer. But then Israel goes into slavery, if you will, or exile in Babylon, and that is a punishment. Now, in this day, where Paul is, many of those Israelites have been released, they have returned back, but many Jewish people are scattered throughout the world, and there still is this lingering understanding that God has not returned to Jerusalem or the temple, and so there's this sense, a deep sense, that they are currently living in exile, okay? Why does that matter? Well, as long as you're paying taxes to Caesar, this is not the renewed world that God talked about. It hasn't happened yet, okay? As long as Roman soldiers can make fun of you while you're doing your daily prayers, you're not in God's restored world yet. We're still in an exile. That means we're in the realm of mankind. God lives in the heavenly realm. Where's the one place that the heavenly realm and the realm of humanity intersect? The temple, okay? But now the temple is not like it once was. God's presence isn't necessarily there if you're at the temple. But if you're one of these Jews that's scattered throughout the world, you can't go to worship at the temple anyway. 
So where is the place where heaven and earth collide? Where is the place of God's divine presence with humanity? If you can't go to the temple or if he's not in the temple, it's the Torah. It's got to be in the scriptures themselves. The way to commune with the one living God is to follow Torah. Okay? So don't think about, the. you might have been taught things like, oh, it was just this real rampant legalism and they're just trying to earn their salvation. That's there, that's here in our church as well. That's in every religious community. But primarily, Paul has grown up in a world where he's desperately hoping for God's saving rescue and before it comes, his best chance of engaging with God is by following Torah, following the law in the scriptures. Now as a Pharisee, Paul is, as a Pharisee, what is Paul really interested in for his people? Well, he's really interested in people being ministered to by God, having, in the same way that I care about you meeting Jesus and following him, Paul cares about people knowing the one true God, and the best way to do that is through Torah. Here comes Jesus and company, and they're not following Torah. They're corrupting the one way that human beings have to commune with God. This isn't Paul on a power trip. This isn't Paul... Uh, trying to control other people or being a legalist per se. This is Paul who cares about other people, wants to follow God and has been given one clear way to do that and Jesus and company are messing that up. So he's very interested in seeing them stopped. <laughs> in Galatians, he'll write a letter to the church in Galatia later and he'll say this. You heard about the way that I was in my former life in Judaism. You know, this is 10, 15 years after the fact. He's writing back about the way he was when he was a young guy. He says, you remember how I was savagely persecuting the church and trying to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond all of my contemporaries, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. His desire to stop Christianity was zealous and, he says, savage. That's intense. Notice Paul's not whiny. He's not a kind of a whiny male content. Man, you guys aren't doing anything right. He's not like that at all. He was a star student, rising above all of his peers. He was well known for being a really sharp Bible scholar. And he had a savage zeal against the church. Uh, in another letter he writes, the church in Philippi, he says this, I was a true blue Jew. He says it this way, I was circumcised on the eighth day, and my mom and dad were Jewish, and I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he says, I'm as Jewish as it gets, and I lived according to the law as a Pharisee, he says. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, here's a key important word, he says, according to the law, I was blameless. Okay, what do we take from this? Paul's a real Jew. He follows Torah. We've talked about why already. Every day, 
It's it, it, day in and day out. That's what he cares about the most, following God, doing what's right. He self-identifies as a Pharisee, which means he's in the group of the people who follow it the best. In the 22nd chapter of Acts, he'll say that he studied under Gamaliel, one of the best, most pronounced, uh, renowned Hebrew scholars of his day. He studied under that guy, okay? So Paul's really into it. Why I'm saying all this is because of that last line. I want you to notice that Paul is not stuck in some kind of guilt cycle. We hear this often. Well, the law was just given so that you could learn that you can't follow it, and you need somebody who can follow it perfectly, and that's Jesus. So now Jesus follows it perfectly, and that makes you feel less guilty because you know he did the work for you. That would all work if Paul didn't say to us, according to the law, I was blameless. <laughs> that's not the words of somebody who feels like he's guilty. We would expect him to say something like, According to the law, I could never measure up. Or according to the law, I just couldn't work hard enough and I needed Jesus to do it for me. He doesn't say that. He says, I was blameless. He believes he was really knocking it out of the park in terms of doing what's right for Jesus, or for God, not Jesus, sorry. <laughs> he thinks he was totally doing the right thing. He believed that what he was doing was the best thing he could be doing at that time. And it was based on zeal not based on guilt. He wasn't trying to feel better. He wasn't trying to make money. He wasn't trying to be famous. He was just really, really passionately devoted to God. There's a little side note here, I wanted to say this. I don't think that Paul is alone in the tendency that we as human beings have to do things that are really awful toward one another in the name of honoring God. We have to be really careful about that. It's given us as a church a really bad name, doing cruel, condemning, contemptuous things toward other human beings and, and saying, I have to behave this way toward you because of how much I love God. I think I said in the sermon not long ago, if your love for God causes you to hate another human being, it's not love for God. In this case, however, notice, it's not that Paul is doing something bad and then using God to justify it, right? It's that Paul believes he's really doing something good and he's wrong. We do both of those. We do things we know are bad and we say, well, you know, I gotta do it for God. In this case, it's ignorance. He's, do he's really doing what he thinks is right uh, but it's not. Zeal for God without the loving forgiveness of Jesus can be like an opiate, I think. It kills your pain, right? In our world where we all experience pain, zeal for God makes that pain go away a little bit. It makes you feel right. It makes you feel good, all while it destroys the life of you and those around you. It's like heroin. It's like an opiate. It makes you feel good and it wrecks your life and everybody around you. That's what happens when our zeal for God is broken away from the loving kindness and forgiveness and grace of Jesus. And that was the peace that Paul needed to be whole in God. Not just zeal for what's right, zeal for what's right and the loving grace and inclusiveness 
the peacefulness and the love of Jesus. Okay, so Paul tells us that in his core, he thinks he's on the right track. Luke gives us that, that setup, and then we go again to this text. Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? That gives us a clue into how the New Testament understands you and me. We are in Christ. We are welcoming people into the life of Christ. When a Christian is persecuted, so is Christ. In this case, Jesus says, you're beating up on and locking up my people, which means you're doing that to me. That should help us really think about how we treat one another as believers. I'm the one you're persecuting, but stand up and enter the city and be told what you do, what you need to do. <laughs> if you're reading the Bible, most of the time that I read the Bible, I say, come on, you gotta give me some more than that. I mean, here you are. <laughs> this is unbelievable. You have Jesus, he says, hey, I'm Jesus, the guy you despise. So, wow, I've been rambling on and on about me here. Let's get to what you need to do. You know, he just says, hey, I'm Jesus, the guy you hate, now here's what you need to do. Just so quick, I want Luke to give us some more details. I just remember here what we've said on the whole front, front end. We know already, Paul is somebody who is governed by Torah, not by voices in the sky, okay? So this is a big deal that he actually follows and obeys. It's like Luke is saying, Paul was a very specific kind of person before this event, and he became someone very, very different. Paul never would have listened to a voice in the sky. When you remember who Paul truly is, you recognize what's at stake. You can't read these verses without feeling an incredible tension. The heat is on right now. What's he going to do? Here this Jesus has said, here's who I am. Now here's what I want you to do. Verse 8. Saul gets up from the ground, but although his eyes were open, he couldn't see anything. Leading him by the hand, his companions brought him to Damascus. For three days he couldn't see, and he neither ate nor drank or anything. I think Luke is kind of teasing us a little bit here, you know. Here's Paul, the great apostle. And where do you go where you can't eat or drink or see anything for three days? Well, maybe at the grave. Maybe as he's baptized at the end and raised up into new life with Christ, we see a little bit of a picture of Paul going into a grave. I think it's there. It's not overt, but it's there. Now here comes a twist, verse 10. Now there's a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias replied, here I am, Lord. Does that ring a bell for us at all? That's the way that the prophets reply to God when he summons them. Here I am. So Luke pitches Ananias to us in a bit of like he's a prophet a little bit. Then the Lord told him, go up to the street called Straight. And at Judas's house, look for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come to his place, lay hands on him so that he can see again. Now remember, Ananias is a believer. He loves Jesus, but he says, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
And here he has the authority from the chief priests to imprison everybody who calls on your name. Okay? Is Ananias being a jerk here? Is he fighting with God? No, he's being reasonable. Are you sure you have the right guy? Because last I checked, that dude's killing us <laughs> and locking us up. You want me to help him? You know? I don't know, it might be a little bit like Jonah. Go up to the Ninevites, and Jonah's like, I don't think that's a good idea. So Ananias, he says, I don't know if you, are you sure it's Saul with an S? And he says, yeah, I want you to go talk to Saul. Lord said, go, here's why I want you to go, Ananias, because he's a chosen instrument. He's gonna carry my name before the Gentiles. It's cool, Ananias knows Paul's life before Paul even knows it. <laughs> he's told, this is what this guy's going to become and he's going to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. That's a huge statement. We might miss it because most of us aren't Jewish. He's, he's literally saying, I'm going to make this persecuting Jewish superstar into somebody who welcomes Gentiles into the community of God. It's ridiculous. This is just a, it's just a fascinating moment. I'm gonna turn him into that kind of, I bet Ananias is just like, oh my goodness. I bet he actually believes it, but he's just, I can't wait to see how that's gonna happen. But Ananias clearly believes in Jesus. So Ananias departs and he enters the house. I love it. He, he offers his challenge to God. He says, I don't think this makes any sense at all, but not your will, or not my will, but your will. You know, it's like he, he picked that up from Jesus somewhere and decided he would live the same way. So he goes in. He places, I'm in verse 17. He places his hands on Saul and he says, he says, brother, brother Saul. Oh my goodness. In Galatians 3.28, Paul will later on, he'll say, in the gospel, there is no such thing as a difference in, val in value between men and women. There is no longer a difference in value between master and slave. They're both infinitely valued. There is no difference between an American and a Mexican and between a Jew and a Gentile because they are all infinitely valued. Paul will say that later on here. Ananias with that word brother foreshadows what the gospel becomes in this world. The gospel transcends our preferences and teaches us to include. Here Ananias says to the persecuting, hateful Jewish zealot who wants to kill him, hey, brother, the Lord Jesus, he might have said our Lord, but I don't know if we're even there yet, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came here has sent me to you so that you can see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. I don't know what that is. Maybe it was so bright his eyes crusted up, like he got some kind of divine LASIK. It's, you know, something's falling off his eyes. And he could see again, and he gets up and was baptized. Boom, just like that. This is, amazing, this is an amazing moment. And after taking some food, his strength returned. I say, I love that after Jesus' resurrection in Luke, you know. He comes after he's resurrected, and he goes to the guys, and he, says, he talks to them for a little bit, and he says, you guys got anything to eat? <laughs> got any fish over there? It's like Paul's right there. He's, he's a human being, but born afresh. I think we say a hundred things about these verses, but the, what I want to say 
is that this moment we see is basically similar to what you see in that caterpillar. It's a total change, but I think it's much more miraculous and complex. We see in Paul a movement from blindness to being able to see. Physically, it's represented. I think that's the symbol. But it's a blindness about reality. What he thought he knew to be real was not real. And Jesus, by encountering Jesus, he's able to start seeing what is real. The temple is no longer the place where heaven meets earth. It's the person of Jesus. And if we are in Christ, men and women, you start to recognize some of the New Testament's talk about you and me being chosen to rule. The way the New Testament talks about us is not something that computes easily with me because it talks about you and me both like we were built by God to rule in this entire cosmos, which means he values us and sees us as having that capacity. So often we don't think that way. And we think, we think about reality in a very messed up American way where we think our job is to make enough money to not be too uncomfortable until we die. And, and God says, in reality, I built you to be so fully alive, you don't even know what life is yet. Enter into Jesus' life. Following Torah is no longer the way to experience the temple or the presence of God where you are. You can still follow Torah, and do so out of love and respect for God. But now we meet God through Jesus. Jesus, the person from Nazareth, he's the one God. He lives in resurrection glory. And that's the life he invites us into. It's a divine human togetherness. The good news then is not you get to go to heaven when you die. That's not what Paul is worried about here. Very few actually have thought about what we're doing here in those terms. The good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. What we have long waited for is happening. He truly is the ruler of all the world. And he's really good. Paul there on that road began living into the divine life for real. Before he had learned much about it, here he enters into it. And I think just briefly in closing, you see in Ananias, in his story, a reality that's just as beautiful. It's less uh, like helping a blind person see. That's Paul to, or Saul to Paul. Ananias already sees. But I think the picture there is a person who gets to understand more reality. It's that sanctifying picture. Ananias believes in Jesus. He trusts in God. He's following. He belongs to the way. But even here, he has to learn, yeah, you can even include your most deadly enemy into this thing. That's a big, it's easy to say. It sounds real inspiring. Take the person who you know wants to kill you and welcome them into your life. Treat them the way God has told you to treat them. That's not, that's not easy. And Ananias learns to do that here. He, he was saved, and I think here you see a picture of Ananias being saved even more. 
Both of these pictures combine into a picture of transformation that can be so helpful for us. Many of the tensions that we feel related to following God, I think, are actually related to the thought that we're following God when we're really not. So we think that, look, I'm following God. My life should be different now. What do you mean by following God? Well, I pray or whatever, and I go to church whenever I can, and like, or whatever, and do some stuff. I don't know. And it's like, well, that's, that's not the picture of a metamorphosis. That's a picture of adhesion. Adhesion involves accepting a new kind of worship as a supplement to your life. So my life is doing what it's doing and I'm okay. I'm going to take on this new way of worshiping to help supplement and add to my life. That's adhesion. Conversion is very, very different. It involves not a useful supplement, but the entire substitute. It's saying, my old way of life was wrong, and this way of life is right, and this way of life is with Jesus. It's a new way of life, and I think that's why early Christians weren't called Christians. They belonged to a way of living. And we'll keep talking about that through Acts, because I know you're saying, well, what is that? Well, anytime you ask, well, what did that entail? I want to point you back to the way that Jesus lives. The way he talks to people, the way he engages with them, the way he punishes them, right, or forgives them. That's what it means to live in the way. John Barclay writes this, by conversion, we mean the reorientation of the soul of an individual his or her deliberate turning from indifference or an earlier form of righteousness to another, a turning which implies a consciousness that a great change is involved. The old was wrong, the new is right. Have we adhered to Christianity? Or are we being transformed into Jesus' life? Are we using the fire and excitement of our own zeal for the Bible in a way that blinds us to reality? Or are we receiving the grace of Jesus and his love for us in a way that opens our eyes? Paul's eyes are opened. He no longer hates his enemies, but he loves them. The people he thought were destroying the life of God he now becomes their greatest supporter. He's transformed from a persecutor to a proclaimer. So that's where we want to be asking the questions as we go through. We'll be in this story about Paul for a couple weeks. But the question I want to really, really anchor into our hearts and minds is, am I changing? And if so, how am I changing? Is my heart changing or is it not? Some of us will say it's changing every day. And if that's the case, my guess is you're experiencing a lot of pain right now because that's usually how it works. Some of you will say, you know, Ben, my heart has not really changed for a very long time. I mostly do and think the same things that I've thought for decades. And I, and I say, that's, that's, that's human, <laughs> that's normal. But here today, the voice of God saying to you, 
If you're not in a lifestyle of ongoing transformation, becoming more like Christ, then you've just adhered to a religion, but you haven't surrendered to the life of Jesus. And, and he says to us, all of us who have not done that fully, which I think is every one of us, he says, I love you guys. My arms are wide open. You're weary. You're heavy laden. Come to me. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a difficult world. Oh, and it's so beautiful. Some days the, the darkness from the clouds and rain feel like the best picture of my soul and my outlook. It's just gloomy and really, really bummed out. Other days we come across a little monarch caterpillar on a milkweed and just watch it move around and say that I live within a miracle here. It's profoundly beautiful to be alive. So I pray that you would help us become more and more alive, truly alive in you, not playing religious games, not forming faith-based social clubs, but becoming parents, children, single adults, grandmas and grandpas, moms and dads, all of us here, becoming people who look at the ways of regular American living and say, yeah, we're done with that now. We don't value that same stuff. We value hospitality. We value love, real love. We value graciousness. We value strength in building one another up. We value togetherness. Take away the things that we've idolized, like money, power, and the safety of military. Help us to become people who don't trust in those things at all. And instead, be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Jesus, so that we have your mind, so that we actually believe you are the one who created this whole world. You're present and active in it. And everything you've said about it will come to pass. And that means full restoration, full renewal. Our job is to be with you and help one another do the same. Oh, we love you so. We're thankful. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.